Interface is a proud sponsor of the How to Specify podcast, teaching the importance of sustainability in design. Interface set out on their sustainability journey back in 1994. Yes, 94. And since then, they've been leading the way in sustainable manufacturing and product design. From thoughtfully designed carpet tiles and LVT to durable Nora rubber flooring, Interface makes carbon neutral products that make an impact on people's lives, their spaces, and the planet. Lower your carbon footprint with one positive step. Visit interface.com today to learn more about their carbon neutral floors. Hey everyone, welcome back to the I Hear Design podcast. I'm your host, Robert Yaminen, Chief Content Director for Interiors and Sources. And if you've been tracking with us, we are continuing our How to Specify series. In this episode, we're gonna be focusing on the materials category. So stay tuned because I've got a great guest I'll introduce you to in a moment who knows materials and the material world better than just about anybody else I know. But before I do, just by way of observation, you know, I've been hearing a lot about the role that materials will play in terms of keeping people healthy in a post-COVID-19 world, especially as businesses start to reopen and infection and the death toll for COVID have been dropping, thankfully. And here's hoping that we don't see another surge in that. There's also been a debate as to whether or not antimicrobials will be a big part of the solution uh, or if it will contribute to the problem, which I don't really want to get into in this episode as I think we could do an entire series on that. But materials do play an important role on both human health as well as make a significant impact on climate change and carbon emissions. And here to talk about this topic is our good friend, Ken Bush, founder of Material Intelligence. Ken, thanks for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much, Robert. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, for our listeners who may not be aware, Ken was a regular fixture at our materials pavilion booth at Neocon every year and one of our go-to experts when it comes to materials. Ken, I don't know about you, but in spite of the usual madness that is Neocon, uh, I miss not being in Chicago this year. And I think right about now, we'd probably be soaking our feet and enjoying a cold beer right about now, right? Exactly. Well, yeah, um, PTSD, right? <laughs> Trying to regroup after the, the uh, whirlwind that is Neocon and running a show there. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, but it is such a great show, and I, and I hope we are all able to attend in person next year. But I know you and I have been talking in preparation for the podcast uh, and topic today, and you had relayed a comment that someone uh, had made to you with regard to cleanable surfaces for interiors, and they had said, uh, every project is a healthcare project now, which I thought was you know really interesting and, and a great insight, and that certainly seems to ring true. Uh, what do you think they meant by that specifically, and do you agree? I do agree, um, and, and there's, there are a couple of facets to that idea. First of all, of course, cleanability and keeping uh, spaces and surfaces clean. Very big deal, of course, it's always been a big deal in healthcare, but now uh, I'm working closely with a group called MindClick who are rethinking specification in the hospitality world, and of course the hotels are all very uh, concerned about how they're going to make people feel comfortable when it's time to return into the greater world. And so being able to talk about how the materials uh, and their furniture and fixtures um, are being kept clean. Uh, so that's one part of it. And mm -hmm. we may get deeper into that, uh, Robert, I think. But, you know, sure. the idea is, is that uh, um, cleaning regimens are, are changing. They're going to get more um, extreme. They're going to get more frequent. And uh, the surfaces and the products uh, in public spaces in commercial use areas um, are going to need to be able to stand up to that. 
The other side of that, though, is the idea that uh, there's a psychological effect, clean design, um, mm -hmm. areas that don't look like they have a ton of nooks and crannies where the wee beasties can hide. <laughs> uh, areas that, uh, well, one thing I've been in conversations with is, you know, furniture that's easy to move and clean around and under. So, um, yeah, the, the, the healthcare space, you know, you, it's clinical, right? We used to call, that used to be a bad term. Um, of course, uh, healthcare design is changing and getting less quote unquote clinical, but all other um, environments that people are going to be spending time in now have to have to be healthy on that yeah. front, cleanable and uh, and psychologically soothing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just to you know make that point of uh, clarification, like clinical and institutional, I think would be two different things. And I think you know they can they can be cleanable and healthy and but they can still be beautiful right i mean using some of the materials uh like decorative laminates they can still be cleanable and yet have the warmth of wood looks let's say exactly exactly yeah. okay well as i mentioned in my introduction ken um you you know this better than anybody you know material product choices do have a direct impact on climate change and human health and so for our listeners out there um can you maybe elaborate a little bit on how those two are interrelated because i'm not sure everybody always makes that connection there's a lot of conversations now about how uh, the compounds that people are using to try and clean their environments, you know, whether it's constantly spraying alcohol on your hands and on the shopping cart handles and whatnot. Um, that is, you know, obviously a great way to um, take every precaution. But the idea that we are now surrounding ourselves with these pretty extreme compounds and, you know, everybody's talking as well about chemicals of concern. And that's not just what's built into products. It's what we use to clean and maintain them. Um, the idea that perhaps we can start using more materials uh, applied on more surfaces that can be just cleaned with a very simple soap and water or vinegar rather than uh, betadine or some of these higher um, <laughs> um, def def defense grade uh, cleaning uh, compounds. That is a great way to reduce the amount of chemistry you are subjecting your human organism to um, <laughs> when you're when you're in a, in a space. So the idea, you know, and this I, I, I hate to draw this analogy, but you know, there are some uh, parallels to um, the, the, the agricultural industry creating um, plant hybrids that are more resistant to pesticides. Right. Okay, we aren't getting quite that far. That's like the far end of the extreme, but there are um, materials that are being developed to be um, cleaned uh, as well as they can be cleaned by anything with the use of very simple solutions, just right. uh, gentle soap and water. Without the use of a hazmat suit for the cleaning crew, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. We don't need a breathing apparatus or a... Yeah, or have okay. to go into quarantine after uh, after right. hosing down our desktops. Right, gotcha. Okay. So one of the terms I've heard you talk about um, in, in your webinar that you did a couple weeks ago for us is carbon positive. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how that fits into the materials category specifically? Sure. Actually, it's climate positive. And I oh, right, right. Sorry neglected that. to correct you on that, Robert. <laughs> I saw that in an email. But so, yeah, climate positive um, is a it's, it's basically a, a more consumer friendly way to say carbon negative. Basic ideas is that this product or process um, pulls more carbon out of the atmosphere than is released in its uh, production and use. Right. Mm -hmm. So carbon negative is a little bit of a confusing term. It's got the word negative in it. I personally have sort of surveyed family members and friends who are 
not immersed in this stuff from the design world uh, day in and day out. And they have to stop a beat and, and think about that. Um, I was actually preparing a CEU on, on healthy materials and I stumbled across the term climate positive. IKEA wants to be climate positive by 2030. Um, other big brands out there, international and global brands are, are, are on a path to being climate positive. Uh, but they're doing that by slowly eliminating processes or, or um, ingredients in the process that um, are, are too hard on the environment, that require too much carbon to produce and, and, uh, and, and, and don't really take anything back out of the atmosphere. Um, I've been working a lot with the wood and, and panels industry and um, the um, natural properties of wood, um, it is one of the world's, uh, one of nature's best carbon sinks naturally. So mm -hmm. climate positive is a term that sort of applies naturally to some materials. Other, other materials and products in industry, um, you know, they're buying carbon offset credits and writing right. checks to the rainforest fund to claim to be climate positive. Yeah, exactly. If you can do it with the material, with the actual building materials that you're using, uh, that's going to be more of an ideal approach, right? Exactly. I think there's going to be, uh, you know, a shift toward doing it, uh, what, naturally or organically or in, uh, intrinsically, right? Without, yeah. uh, without having to play the shell game of, oh, but we, you know, we bought offset credits. So. Right, right. Yeah. Organically was the word I was looking for. So thanks for that. Yes. Um, I mentioned your webinar that you did for us a couple of weeks ago. Um, and during that uh, presentation, someone from the audience asked a really good question that I you know, want you to respond here as well. Uh, and they said something to the effect of, you know, given the sustainable nature of natural wood, uh, can't you make the same argument for using solid wood or, or that it's even better than going with wood composites? Like, what's the difference? Yeah, so there's a million variables in that idea. And I, I wish I'd had a better answer when that was uh, actually asked. And I've actually been querying the industry a bit. And uh, it, there's so many variables that it's hard to give a succinct uh, and satisfying answer to that. But first of all, you know, composite wood, um, MDF and particle board are made up of wood fiber that is packed very, very densely. So the amount of wood fiber that's in a panel uh, of MDF uh, is a lot greater than the amount of wood fiber that would be in a natural piece of lumber of the same volume. So that's one way to look at it. So the, the sequestration of that fiber then would, you know, trees are 50% carbon, right? So as they grow through photosynthesis, uh, they, 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 uh, they store all this carbon. Um, so the density of the, of, the, of the panel is one way to look at it, but you know, solid wood, what, you know, where are we going with that? Is it pine? Is it bubinga, right? So um, the idea that uh, you can you can make a blanket statement about wood versus composite wood, um, you know, that's we need more information to kind of quantify that. Um, the wood that goes into construction lumber is the same wood that goes into composite panels. That's fast growth. That those those trees basically mature um, completely within 40 or 50 years. When you're talking about the kind of wood that you would use in fine furniture or in commercial furniture as solid wood, you know, that's old growth. That's, that's hard wood. That's at least 80 years old. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there's some quantifiables that we can measure, um, you know, the basic carbon in absorption and the oxygen production. And then there's some quantify, there's a lot of things we can't quantify, like how long will it last in an application? And that's the mm -hmm. other thing about composite wood generally has a very durable 
surface on it, laminate surface. Um, you know, that will outlast in a, in a hotel uh, elevator, let's say, that will outlast solid mm -hmm. wood by a good seven or 10 years. Sure. So you have to look at the longevity of the installation as well. So there is no simple answer. I really wish there was. Yep. You'll be the first to know if I find one. <laughs> All right, great. I'll hold you to that, yeah. And yeah, and so you talked a little bit about the different types of wood, you know, hardwoods versus others. Um, for some of the listeners out there who might cringe at the thought of specifying wood products that contribute to deforestation, can you talk more about sustainably managed forests and the difference between construction lumber and fiber for wood, composite wood versus, you know, forests that, that uh, provide hardwoods and exotic species that you touched on? Yeah, this was an eye-opener for me. I completed a CEU for a, a company called Uniboard last fall. Uh, they're a big producer of composite panels and TFL, decorative panels, in Canada. And uh, the way I do CEUs is I'll do um, several interviews, uh, deep diving into the different aspects of a company's production or um, handling of the resources, etc. Their FSC chain of custody specialist is a certified forester and a passion for being in the forest. And he had all these really great things to say about what FSC forestry management means in the real world. Um, you know, of course, yes, you are responsibly harvesting lumber from a managed forest, but the way FSC dictates um, how we manage boreal forests, which are the Northern forests where construction and siding and flooring lumber comes from, after those products, there's 50% of the fiber left on the forest floor. That's what gets turned into particle board MDF and OSB. So the way those forests are managed is they are doing their best to replicate the natural rhythms of those ecosystems, which uh, man, mankind has uh, disrupted by moving in with our summer cabins and building communities and, and uh, parks and recreational trails and whatnot. Uh, we are putting out fires and killing insects that are actually part of the natural system that is designed to regenerate these forests every 10, or I should, I should say every 40 or 50 years or so. So um, there's no such thing as an old growth Douglas fir. After about 40 or 50 years, those trees stop absorbing um, carbon, they stop mm -hmm. producing oxygen and they become tinder, right? right? So in nature's perfect system, that part of the forest would burn and regenerate the next spring with uh, seed uh, saplings and new growth and younger uh, you know uh, wildlife and and you know it, it's a it's a system of constant destruction and rebirth um, section by section so what fsc forestry has done is they take stands of trees that have reached maximum maturity harvest them and pull them out of the forest um, leaving a meadow which generates regenerates into into new growth and one of the coolest things I learned was um, we only have to replant one out of every eight trees that we take out of forests like that because they just naturally regenerate. And again, this is not clear cutting, uh, you know, many square kilometers of, of, of forest at a time. This is taking out stands of trees that have reached their peak maturity. So this keeps the entire ecosystem young, uh, absorbing more carbon mm -hmm. and producing more oxygen and actually, you know, providing uh, a, a friendlier uh, environment for um, wildlife. Yeah, definitely. Um, FSC forestry management also dictates that you have to be doing right by local communities and indigenous peoples and local economies, and right? So it's not just pointing out which trees you're allowed to harvest. It's making sure that sustainability goes beyond just the forest 
to the local communities and the and the sort of society as well as the ecology in those yeah. areas. Yeah, it's that people, planet, profit, right? I mean, it says that that people component to it as well. So yeah, that's really important. I'm glad you pointed that out. All right, and then um, I guess the last question I had for you, Ken, before I let you go, is um, you know what other considerations should designers keep in mind when they're specifying decorative laminates such as HPLs, TFLs, and 3DLs? You know, one thing I think that a lot of people still haven't um, haven't uh, been informed about is the fact that these materials all have a place depending on what you need for durability, uh, what you are looking for as far as design flexibility, meaning the shape of the surface, the texture of the surface, et cetera. Uh, and all of these companies are working together to share design uh, files, essentially, right? So you can get the same colors, the same patterns and textures in four or five different materials now. So um, depending on, you know, if you've, if you've got a hotel check-in desk, you're going to want something that's very, uh, fairly variable, uh, durable, I should say. If you've got then behind that a feature wall that you want to blend or match, you don't need the same durability. So you can specify a much lighter weight material, save some money, save some resources, and but still not have to compromise your design vision. So, uh, um, th that's something that I think a lot of people are still figuring out and the fact that you know they've done a lot of um, development of the textures and let's face it right we love wood we're talking about forest we're talking about solid wood over 90% of all these decorative laminates these printed and engineered materials imitate wood mm -hmm. um, it's because we as a species have basically evolved along with wood our use of wood is part of our Part of the reason we've gotten so far, for better or worse. Yeah, it's it's part of that whole biophilia thing too, right? Like we want to see it, whether it's natural or or uh, manufactured, right? Yeah, great point. Exactly. Yeah. So what these uh, what these material suppliers have done is is worked very very hard at recreating um, everything that you get emotionally from wood. Uh, and in the last ten years or so, a lot of those developments have been in the texture side. High fidelity printing's been a given for quite some time. Now they've got textures that are so good, man. I tell you, I picked up a, one of these pieces the other day and it was, you can get a raw wood finish, which you could never use in real life, but because it's an engineered surface, mm -hmm. uh, it's as durable as your grandma's uh, Formica countertop, right? It was so realistic that I, I, I just, I felt like I had to rub sawdust off of my fingertips after <laughs> handling it. Nice. So um, yeah, the, the, the development in these materials has been fantastic. And in the end, you're getting all of the emotional um, satisfaction out of it mm -hmm. uh, with none of the guilt. Uh, that's a win-win, right? I mean, who doesn't, <laughs> who doesn't want Should that? Be. Yeah. 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 That's good stuff. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, Ken. Thanks for sharing those insights with our listeners today. Um, it's always great catching up with you, my friend. Same here, Robert. I appreciate it. Okay, great. Well, for our listeners, if you want to watch the on-demand version of Ken's recent presentation, how to specify climate positive materials, head on over to interiorsandsources.com slash materials slash webinars and have a look. And you can also learn more about materials at Ken's website, materialintelligence.com. And I also want to give a big thanks to our sponsor interface for making this podcast possible. Thanks again for tuning in everyone. And as always be well.